This is a joint event between the Christian Union, the Christian Medical Fellowship, and the Humanist Society with the support of the Philosophy Society. It really is a pleasure to have you along. I'm just going to introduce our speaker, uh, Dr. John Patrick. Until 2002, John Patrick was uh, the Professor of Pediatrics and Biochemistry at the University of Ottawa. Since then, he's now the pres President of Augustine College in Ottawa, which is a liberal arts college. Um, during his medical career, John Patrick uh, worked with Malnyara's children in Jamaica and the Congo with his wife. Um, he now gives between 300 and 400 lectures a year, I'm told, uh, on ethics, culture and public policy. So it's a really great privilege to have him with us. And I'm sure you all join me in giving him a big hand. Cheers, John Patrick. It's as astonishing to see you here. I suppose it's the food you've come for, really. But you might even understand this lecture. Will that be a disturbance to you? Now, it's a pleasure to be here. For years, I'm afraid I was the kind of professor you know only too well. How many of you are doing science, by the way, or medicine? which is not necessarily science, quite a lot of you. Well, you know the kind of guy who comes in, gives his lecture, walks out, doesn't really care whether you understood a word of it or not, and when your evaluations come through the post, puts them in the garbage unopened. Because I was cynical enough to know that as long as I had grants and I was publishing, the dean would not do anything, and he never did. And it was students who got to me a few years ago. Um, some of them used to... Within a few weeks, there would be a few who would sit in the front row, basically for the throwaway lines. Uh, and they began to realize that I didn't actually think the university had got it all right. For instance, I don't think that memorize and dump is a good description of what education ought to be, but it's certainly what we do to medical students. Uh, and then one of them came to my room rather timorously and said, are you by any chance a Christian? And I smiled and said, well, if you mean by that, do I think that the story is likely to be true? Yes. Um, and he said, I heard you give a lecture about university being just about the most corrosive solvent there is for faith. Um, would you help us to preserve ours? There are five of us in first year. I was about to say no when my mother, so to speak, appeared at the back of my head and said, you could do that. You ought to do that. So instead of saying no, I said, what do you want me to do? And they said, well, would you do some Bible studies with us to help us integrate science, medicine, and faith? And I thought for a moment, I said, all right, I'll do three weeks, and you better come to my home at 8.30 at night so that you've done some study beforehand and you're not neurotic. I didn't do three weeks. I did 10 years. Um, the real trouble with starting to like, get to know students is that you then start to like them. And then they wreck your life by getting you into all sorts of situations like this. I could be at home on my farm with my feet up, and here I am in Edinburgh with winter approaching. Mind you, winter approaching in Canada is an entirely different matter. So, can we be good without God? Raise your hand if you are good. Now, three people have put up their hands. Do you have any friends here? Apart from the three who have put up their hands. Do you agree that they are good without exception? Oh, yeah. So, really, you need to go back to formal logic, I think. But the rest of you haven't moved, because you know your friends would start laughing if you did say you were good. Only by redefining good in a very narrow way could you possibly put up your hands. Uh, one of the things that turned me into a Christian in due course was Paul's description, which seemed to me to be accurate, certainly for me, 
The good that I would, I do not. The evil that I would not, that I do. That's not a bad description of a doctor. Uh, under many circumstances. So, yeah, but in the very fact that none of you said, which would have been the clever postmodern answer, I don't understand your question, because you didn't expect me to start that way, so I caught you off guard. You've told me two things about yourself. No one in this room denied that they know what goodness is. And secondly, you also told me that you're not doing it. Now, if the university is right that our problems are problems of ignorance, that doesn't make sense. Or at least if it makes sense, it's rather sad sense, because if you know what goodness is and could do it and aren't, you're either a charlatan or a fool. But if, on the other hand, you know what goodness is and when you set out to do it, you frequently fail, then the problem is not ignorance. The problem is the will and how it is formed. And that's where we all are, isn't it? And you're at a stage which is delightful in many ways. One of the most delightful things about your age group is that you're still hopeful and idealistic, many of you who haven't watched too much Seinfeld. Uh, and the best thing I ever did with your age group, I used to take, my wife and I used to take students with us to Central Africa. They asked for it. It was my medical student abuse program. Um, these were preclinical students, and they knew that I spent the summer in Africa. And on the first trip, we came back. Of course, the students wanted to talk with pictures, and we arranged that. And then the class feminist and another girl who was a lapsed Catholic came to me and said, will you take us to Africa with you? And I said, I don't know that I'm going. And they said, but your wife is. They got her taped instantly. And I said, what would you do for me? And they said, anything you want. So what I did, I took 30 or 40 students over the years, and I would take three or four students. I'd teach them to resuscitate a severely malnourished child in one afternoon. They were preclinical students. And then walk with them for two days into the bush to a village that I had chosen, that I wanted surveyed. And I left them there for five weeks. No running water, no electricity, hole in the ground for a toilet, uh, bugs dropping out of the ceiling at night. What do you think that did to them? It was the most acceptable thing I did in the university. They were all changed by the experience. Many of them said, I will never, ever do anything like that again. But they were very glad that they'd done it. Some couldn't wait to get back. Because they thought they had gone to help, and they found out that they were being helped in many ways. And, of course, one of the things they had to come to is this question of goodness, how it varies. Now, your anthropologists will tell you that all moral truth is relative. That's not true. Uh, underneath, every society, for instance, has an honour code. Without an honour code, you cannot have a society, even honour among thieves. The honour code may be better or worse, but the anthropological descriptions of the different behaviours have under them, almost invariably, I think, some concept of honour that is common to all. Everybody everywhere knows that you ought not to do gratuitous harm to an innocent human being. Of course, we rationalise away various bits of that argument and don't do it. But we know that. We all know that friendship is good. But the way that we express these things varies. So when you've heard a man say, but I could buy a new wife for the cost of that operation, you realise you're in a different culture, don't you? And at least 50% of the people here would probably not wish to live there if you were very sick, right? No, cultures differ. 
And we need to be respectful of one another, but not in order to say in a, a sort of, well, it's really a condescending multiculturalism that says all cultures are equal. That's sheer laziness, because you can't even make the statement unless you know about the culture that you're talking to. What we do normally with multiculturalism is close the conversation down so we can get on with living, knowing that ours is dominant. That's condescension. Uh, the real thing takes a lot more work. A pluralism that invites everybody to discussion is worthwhile. So goodness exists everywhere. Its fundamentals, I think, are there, and its opposite evil. The expressions are complicated, and they come out of the cultural stories within which we all live. Now, I didn't realize when I arrived here that I only got 25 minutes for this first part. It would normally take an hour, so this is going to be fast. And then you have to ask questions. So, the source of the title, Can We Be Good Without God? And it's worth Googling that when you get back with Glenn Tinder. It's still available. It was a paper that was published in uh, the Atlantic Monthly about 15 years ago. Glenn Tinder uh, teaches political science in Boston. Uh, a very courageous man because he wrote this paper and he, he opened with this courageous argument. He said that agape, Christian love, selfless love, is intrinsic to having the idea of intrinsic worth of every human being and the idea of intrinsic human rights and that without it we will be in trouble. Because when other things trump that first right, totalitarianism is on the way. Now, he makes that case fairly clearly. And, of course, it's not difficult to show that something like that might well be true. Think of what Nietzsche said. If, if any philosopher was opposed to Christianity, it was Nietzsche. Uh, he was a pastor's son who obviously didn't get on with his father. Uh, that, would, well, that would have been Freud's account of the matter. But whatever the real reason was, he, he certainly knew how to write with magnificent rhetoric and invective. And he wanted to destroy Christianity. And he wanted Superman. What he did not want and thought was absolutely stupid was to call everybody equal at some level. Uh, we know where that went in Germany over the next little while. Marx was initially totally concerned about the horrendous treatment of the poor in the 19th century. But he ended up with his materialistic philosophy and Lenin trying to put it into practice. And within weeks of starting the revolution, Lenin wrote to a friend, it will be necessary to legalize terror. Why do you say that? Because he knew that we are not good. And if you cannot be controlled from within by your formation, you will have to be controlled from without. In the end, it destroyed Russia. It wasn't Reaganomics that destroyed Russia. It rotted from the inside. As one student said to me, and I think it was St. Petersburg when I asked her, what was the worst thing about growing up under communism? And she said, they destroyed the meaning of the word trust. Now, the question periods I get after these lectures get longer, the worse the situation. So, living in Edinburgh, in a privileged society, there'll be no questions. But in St. Petersburg, the Christian period went for five hours, from seven o'clock till midnight. Uh, why? Because these things matter. So the main thinkers of the last couple of hundred years who've had the most impact on our society, Nietzsche, Marx, Freud, Darwin, all raised problems with this question of goodness. Let me 
make my next point by using an atheist, because obviously I would want to be upfront about the fact that I'm nowadays a Christian. Not a very good one, but at least convinced. But, so it's always good if I can make my points by quoting an atheist. And the man who makes my next point about goodness best is in fact a professor of law. He's now dead. From Yale. He died quite young. I, I must find out from what. He was an unbelieving Jew. But he liked students, and he worried about law students. And in the late 70s, 1979, he gave a lecture at Duke University in, Car in North Carolina. And it was about the philosophy of justice. And it begins like this. It's so good, I learned the first paragraph by heart. He said, I want to believe, and so do you. In a complete immanent, that means available to you. Medical students wouldn't know the meaning of the word. They would think it's the exam next week, but that's imminent. But imminent, available to you, and transcendent set of propositions about right and wrong. Findable rules that direct you as to how to live your life righteously. Now, he's not believing Jew. What's he talking about? What's in his head at this point? Well, of course, it's Torah. It's the Ten Commandments and everything that follows from them. The reason he wants them is that if the law is actually transcendent and there is a God from whom it came, then both the judge and the judged are under the same authority. And justice is at least a theoretical possibility. But he goes on and says, but I also want to believe, and so do you, in no such thing, but rather that we are wholly free to decide for ourselves what we ought to do and what we ought to be. What we want, heaven help us is to be simultaneously perfectly free and perfectly ruled. That is, at the same time, to discover the right and the good and to invent it. Now, even Americans can't do that. It's not possible. You have the one, you don't have the other. Then he does something very unacademic. He writes 20 pages of lucid prose that you can really understand, looking at the two options. In the end, however, he is a professor at Yale in the 1970s. Social Darwinianism is the norm. And he's not got enough courage to buck the trend. So he ends up like this. He says, it looks to me as though we are all that we've got. In other words, Darwin is right. We're just a colossal accident. But he's honest. He's Jewish. He's well-trained. He says, looking around, this is an, an extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. Looking around the world, if brotherly love exists, the ruling model is Cain and Abel. Now, in this audience, I now know there are some of you who don't know who Cain and Abel are. That's the level of biblical illiteracy that the Western world has reached. For those in that situation, so as not to embarrass you, Cain and Abel were the first brothers in the Bible, and Cain murdered Abel. Uh, not exactly a hopeful start. In fact, if you want to read about dysfunctional families, read Genesis. It's been like that since the beginning, so to speak. But he goes on, he said, Only if the law was unspeakable by us and therefore unnatural would it be unchallengeable. As things stand now, everything is up for grabs. And the exercise of the law is becoming not the exercise of justice, but the exercise of power. Now you have an example of this happening right now in your country, in this country, over the issue of reproductive rights, cloning, embryo manipulations, in which there is a bill which is going to Parliament 
which would make it wrong for a doctor to refuse anything that was legal on grounds of conscience. Now that is the exercise of power, not the exercise of justice. It's also foolish. And you only have to ask one question. Raise your hand if you would like a doctor to care for you and your family who does not have moral integrity. Would any of you want such a doctor? No. It therefore follows that no one has the right to destroy the moral integrity of a physician because that is to diminish him in all future service to others. We have to respect one another. In a world where we don't agree, that means there's got to be some manipulation, yes, but there's got to be agreement. Because that is essential to the practice of medicine, you can't erode it for the sake of, well, in Northern Ireland, 75% of people said they don't want legalized abortion. Why should they? They can have it done here and not mess up their own society. But is it, are the politicians taking any notice of that? No. We need to think about this. When one side begins to, amazingly, impose its views on others, we are in trouble. And it's not, in this case, the Christians. Darwin has got a lot to do with this. There's no mercy amongst animals. It is nature, red in tooth and claw. It's only amongst us that that happens, because we need it, because of our propensity to violence in a way that most animals don't have. The man who said this most beautifully for me, and again, an atheist, is none other than Robert Frost. How many of you are doing English literature? Oh, just one or two. Any of you read The White-Tailed Hornet? It's a beautiful poem. Robert Frost, like me, lived on a farm. In, uh, before his retirement, he didn't retire, neither have I. On any farm in North America, there are hornets' nests every year, and they're fascinating insects. And one always goes and looks at them. He went too close on this particular year and got stung at one point, but he still went back. And he was watching the hornets, and one of them attacked a nail, thinking it was food, and took several goes to find out that it wasn't food. And then he wrote The White-Tailed Hornet, the first part of which describes getting stung, etc. But the bit that matters is this. It made him think about Darwin and about instinct. He said, won't this instinct matter bear revision? Won't almost any theory bear revision? To err is human, not to animal. Or so we pay the compliment to instinct, but really takes away instead of gives. Our humour, conscientiousness and worship went long since to the dogs under the table and served us right for having instituted downward comparisons. As long on earth as our comparisons were stoutly upwards, with gods and angels we were men at least. But once the comparisons were yielded downwards into the mud and even dust, t'was disillusion upon disillusion. We were lost piecemeal to the animals, like people thrown out to delay the wolves. Only our fallibility was left us, and this day's work makes even that seem doubtful. That was written long before Dawkins and the current mob of evangelistic atheists came along. Poets always see it coming, don't they? Just like Heine saw the Second World War from the 1890s. No. Frost has got his finger on something very important. The question for those of you in biology about Darwin is twofold. The first one is, in the beginning, what? 
what you work with. You know there's something afoot when scientists start making jokes at their own expense. And in the molecular biology world, that is happening. Um, partly uh, as a reaction to Francis Collins, who uh, leads the Human Genome Project and is a Christian. It, it's a terrible disgrace that people get converted in his laboratory without him doing anything. Uh, but there's a joke going around in which the molecular biologists get too arrogant and they say to God, given all your resources, you screwed up, we can make better cells than you can. And God says, that's an interesting idea. We'd better have a cell-making competition next week. Well, they've dug the hole and fallen into it. And so next Thursday they arrive at the laboratory. Of course, God gets there first. And as they come in, he waves his finger and says, no, 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 bring your own dirt. In the beginning, what? Information looks the most likely starting point nowadays, even for quantum physics. Uh, the second one is altruism. And again, here, fortunately for me, the best deconstruction of Darwinism from the point of view of altruism is by Australia's best philosopher, an atheist who committed suicide when he found he'd got cancer, a man called David Stowe. And a book of his essays called Darwinian Fairy Tales has just been published. It is brilliantly written. It has a wonderful Australian capacity to cut to the the chase with a certain amount of brutal rudeness. Uh, he said, I don't care whether Darwin's got it all right about the evolution of animals. Of course species evolved. There's no question about that. But he says one thing it doesn't account for is the human being. And altruism is the problem. Now, those of you who are a bit naive have probably been taken on in by the uh, statistical model for the evolution of evolution in the textbooks. The problem with the model is it works statistically, but it doesn't describe human behavior. Uh, for it to work, it would mean that if I was crossing a bridge and I saw someone jump in, I would have to do a swift calculus of shared genes before I jumped. You know, if it was my identical twin who jumped, I'd jump immediately. If it was you, a mere Scotsman, 20 minutes later, uh, that would produce group altruism, but it wouldn't describe human behavior. That isn't the way we work. So ideas of good and evil can't be derived from a purely materialistic, reductionistic world. They could where we had a common story in the past, but not anymore. Easy to illustrate. Uh, I don't know many names here, of course. Uh, I've even forgotten yours. What is it? Jack. Jack, yes. Well, Jack will have to do as my victim. Imagine that Jack has cancer. And imagine that in my pocket I have the cure for his cancer. Ought I to give it to him? <laughs> you have some enemies and a few half-hearted friends. Uh, no, especially if I was a real Darwinian, right? Because if nobody knows I've got the cure, and let's say that Jack is a wealthy man and I inherit his estate, there's no question what a good Darwinian would do now, isn't it? To advantage my genes over his, I let him die, take his money, give everything to my kids, that's a Darwinian win. Only if you import into the argument to save life is good, which did not come from the physical facts, can you get to the moral injunction, you ought to give him the treatment. Facts don't tell you what to do unless you live in a story which already frames those facts for you. Now, I need to make just a few moments a special pleading. 
I'm out of my depth here, of course, in that I'm not by training initially a philosopher, although I spent many years talking to philosophers. My best friends at the university were philosophers. Uh, I was a, a humble scientist and a, a doctor. And uh, the three groups of children that I have spent my life with are the, the malnourished children of the developing world, the 10-pound two-year-olds and the like, children with cystic fibrosis who do not live to have a full life in our terms, and children with cerebral palsy, quadriplegic children who will never walk, talk or feed themselves. Now, given what we are doing throughout the Western world now, where every country in the Western world is not only doing eugenic abortion, it's encouraging it and spreading it rapidly. All three of those groups, under the quality of life approach, would not be treated, they would be wiped out. The biggest sufferers, if we continue down that road, in my view, will be us. Those children have had an impact on my life which can only be described as good. Um, I can't spend as much time on this point as I would like. Let me just finish with one anecdote. I'm just going to annoy you. Uh, an anecdote, it's totally unacceptable, isn't it? But sometimes it, it's, it helps to cement the point. In. The last clinic I ran before I retired was for these severely handi handicapped quadriplegic children. Now, the reason I got interested in them is that a child with quadriplegia that is high will also have a damaged swallowing system. And in fact, no one had ever attempted to quanti quantify uh, how that system works. So we did that. And we found to our horror that these children had about a 10% efficiency in swallowing. Now, you guys eat for about an hour a day. So if I reduced your swallowing efficiency to 10%, you'd clearly need 10 hours to get your nutrient intake. That clearly meant that given the limited funds in the health system, these children must be malnourished. So I went looking in the long-stay homes and found, I think it was 20 teenagers weighing less than 40 pounds in a couple of weeks. It, was no, it wasn't neglect. The system only paid for three hours of feeding. It wasn't enough. We solved the problem by putting a feeding button in. So you lift the shirt of these kids nowadays and you find a little button. And it's plastic and you can lift it off. And it's a tube going into their gut. So that we can give them their nutrient requirements at night or any convenient time fairly quickly. And they can have taste in their mouth. Uh, and they do well. They improve. In fact, we had one lovely little guy who got to me and an awful lot of other people who's, whose parents loved him. You can find these kids. Only two people in the world can feed them. Uh, and that's because they love them and they spend hours doing it. Well, that, Danny Deroux lived in Quebec and his parents knew he was getting too malnourished when he stopped smiling because he had the most beautiful smile. That's the only time they would allow... They wouldn't allow me to put a permanent tube in, but they would allow me to put a tube down and refeed him until he smiled again. And then they took him home until he stopped smiling and that's the way we worked with him. Nurses would go and see him because his smile could make you feel better. Well, the last tube I put in was in a, a little guy of only six months, and it takes most mothers about two years to come to terms with the fact they can't even feed this baby. So I said to mum, as I, I said, I'm, he's going to cry when I put the tube in. There's no way that that can be avoided. She said, I know, and I won't interfere. I'll hold his hand. And I trusted her. So I pulled out the plastic thing, stretched it out, which you have to do, snapped it into place. He cried, and then she uh, comforted him. And I said to her, do you mind telling me why you're doing so well? 
And she said, well, she looked at me as though I needed remedial help, which I did. And she said, well, I married young. I had a family. And they've all grown up and left. And my life was empty. I was suffering from the emptiness syndrome. So God gave me a baby who will never grow up. And then she went on to explain how this baby was civilizing a whole neighborhood. Because with our obsession with money, there are an awful lot of kids with one parent, and an awful lot of kids with two parents who aren't there. Money is killing us. Uh, she lives in such a neighborhood. But now there's one little guy on the block who's fed with a syringe through a little button on his belly. That's cool. So what do you think happens? The kids come home from school. They don't let themselves in and watch awful television or MTV or something. They come home there because they all want to try. So this little guy who will never walk or talk or feed himself, his mother is teaching them there are nicer words than the ones you're using. And in order to get their turn, they have to be gentle and kind. How many of you could say that you'd civilized a few otherwise uncivilizable males into being gentle and kind? That's quite an that would be quite an asset in our society, wouldn't it? That's what they do. The medievals would say that the handicapped are closer to God than we are because they don't carry a grudge into tomorrow. Wouldn't that improve your class? But you're not going to do that. They can teach you that it can be done. We're getting rid of these things. We're becoming harsher, more self-centered. It's not good news. And across the board, the problems are emerging. With you as students, you do not enjoy learning, most of you do. How many of you can raise your hand and say, I really love going to school? Good. Edinburgh's doing better than the average. How many of you are practicing memorize and dump to get through the exams? And the rest of you, what are you doing? Could you pass the exam that you passed six months ago now? Some could, but very few. Socrates would think that's a disaster. You should be wiser by this stage. No, we have alienated students. We know it by the alcohol rates in medical school, well over 20% within weeks. Uh, we know that 50% of our medical students in North America cheat to get into medical school. We're going to trust them afterwards. Cheating is endemic across the board. Uh, no, that's not a happy life. That's what the students got to me with. Take medicine. When I began in medicine a long while ago, most of the patients who came to see me at the beginning came because of what God or nature had done to them. Now, most of them come because of what they have done to themselves. Now, if you are sick and suffering because of your own behavior, and those you love are suffering with you, what do you have to deal with as well as a disease? Try and say it. It's a word that's unacceptable to doctors. What's the word? Guilt, yeah? You will not find it in a textbook. Yet 90% of your patients, that's their major problem. Actually, you will in a psychiatric book, and it will say, depression, evident, uh, feelings of sin, evidence of depression. Uh, it can't deal with reality. No, that's genuine objective guilt. You have done something that you know to be wrong. You're injuring other people in the process. Guilt is inevitable. There's no medicine for guilt. When we give you tranquilizers, all we do is take away your ability to complain. We don't deal with the problem. Basically, tranquilizers dissolve your brain. Antidepressants aren't quite that bad. You can shut people up, but you can't deal with the problem. We have got to go back to a bigger story. 
Amazingly, the people leading the charge on this are some really good, unbelieving academics. Just time for one, and then I must close. I came across this book a couple of years ago, and I happened to be lecturing in the University of Chicago about six weeks ago. And the people who'd invited me said, is there anything we can do for you while you're here? And I said, well, if you can make it happen, I'd love to meet Robert Fogel. And they said, we can do that. Robert Fogel was the first Nobel Prize winner for econometrics. Uh, he's a red diaper Jew. In other words, he grew up in New York at the time when Marxism was trendy. Uh, he's a non-practicing Jew who was, for a while, very left of center. He's now about 80. He wrote a book three or four years ago called The Fourth Great Awakening. I couldn't believe it. Here was a man who was the last person in the world I would expect to be writing a very sensitive and nuanced account of the impact of the Puritans, uh, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, and even Finney on North America, and saying that there's a, another revolution occurring now amongst your age group, in his view. And his thesis is this. He says, the future of America and the Western world, and he wrote this before the last few weeks, does not depend upon economics or science or skills. It depends upon whether we can produce a population that has the virtues that typified America in its first two centuries. And he gives his list of virtues. Here they are. Turn the page for this. I don't want to misquote him. This is the first thing. You, his, his list and mine are not the same, but my goodness, we had a good conversation. The first thing he says you need is a sense of purpose. Now, if you mention the word purpose in a biology essay, you'll get lower marks. But we can't live without it. And of course, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? When we get a gene, the first question we have to ask is, what does it do? Then we get the protein, and we have to ask the question again, what does it do? That's purpose. You can't live without it. The second thing you need is a vision of opportunity. You need to know where the next big thing is going to be. A sense of the mainstream of life and work is another way he puts it. You need a strong family ethic. You can't do this on your own. You need a sense of community. You need a capacity to engage with diverse groups. An ethic of benevolence. A work ethic. A sense of discipline. A capacity to focus one's efforts. A capacity to resist the lure of pleasure. A capacity for self-education. A thirst for knowledge. An appreciation of quality. And last, the modern one, you need a bit, but not very much. A little self-esteem can help. He acknowledges. I said, why did you write this? And he said, well, I'd come to retirement and my wife died. He had married a black Episcopalian lady and he miss, misses her dearly. But he said, I realized it was she who made my children good, not me. The university is no place to learn to be good. You have to go back to other places. You have to begin to realize what matters most. Those students I took to Africa, you see, they saw real communities. We were amazed over the years. Students from good homes came to our house. My wife's a good cook. They came for that. But they really came for the arguments. Some of them had been 20 years in their home and never even come across the key questions. In the beginning, what? Where do I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? How do I make sense of death? How can I deal with suffering? 
How can I believe in justice? What can I know? What ought I to believe? You're all believers. There's nobody in this room who isn't a believer, at least tacitly. The moment you act, you act as though something is true. You have no other option. From the outside, you look like some form of deist or some form of atheist. That's all that's available to you in many respects. We, we are worshipping creatures. We have no option. The only question is what we worship. Those questions they'd never had, so they came for the discussions. I hope that's not true in Edinburgh. It ought not to be. But I've spoken already too long. Sorry. Questions? Yes, sir. Yes. No, I haven't. I think that it's only it only explains statistically. It doesn't explain individually, and we are individual. Yeah. What was the ultimate point that you made about disability? Yes. Do you really think that, that it's a moral statement to say that, that uh, people that are disabled with direct disabilities or yeah. are just kind of tools to make us lucky people uh, better and make us lucky people be nicer to each other? Does God create malnutrition and disability just so that people in the Western world can know that they came from? Is that really happening that level? No, that wasn't what I said, of course. It's your way of constructing it to try and get me to jump into the hole that you want to dig. That's okay. That's fine. I know the game. But the reality is, of course, that suffering is the biggest question for a Christian. That's why one has to deal with it. My wife was sucked into the middle of the Rwanda war. We had a project on the edge of Rwanda for many years. And Sally was actually in Rwanda on the wrong side of the bridge when they closed it. She spent a couple of years working with the Hutu refugees in Zaire. Now, the only people who could stick with it through the first three weeks of that horrendous disaster were Roman Catholic nuns and priests and evangelical Protestants. The people from Medicine Sans Frontier, even who were pretty tough, could do three or four week days, and then they had to go back to Nairobi for rest and resuscitation. You needed invisible support to get through that process. And as, as McIntyre says, where the Christian community does not produce people of the level of the saints, the great Christian heroes of the past, who would go into those situations and do something about them, then it no longer becomes credible. And that is a big problem. There's plenty of criticism that's entirely legitimate uh, to be laid at the feet of the church. The problem is, I don't know of an atheistic leprosarium, to put it bluntly, now, in terms of what suffering does, first of all, for those children, uh, it would be in better to, cause the C to use the CF kids and the CP ones. The CP ones are not suffering because they have no other reference point, and we can control their pain. Uh, so we're, and they're not being exploited, far from it. Now, you might make that case more easily with the CF kids, except that you then have to talk to them. And I'm here today because of one of those kids. Uh, for many years, I would have taken your position. I did. Uh, I was pro-choice, and I bought quality-of-life type arguments, uh, and I was a non-practicing believer. I never had enough faith to be an atheist, um, because you get nothing, and all the responsibilities are yours, and you can't even complain about a God you don't believe in. Uh, so... When I came back from working with malnourished children in the Caribbean to Ottawa, I still had some questions that I wanted to deal with. Uh, so I needed a model of malnutrition. 
I found it in children with cystic fibrosis, which is the commonest genetic disorder in humans uh, in the Western world. Shortly won't be because we're aborting them very successfully. Uh, it's down by 20% in some places. So I jumped through the hoops. They were technically malnourished when they died 20 years ago. Um, the first volunteer was a 15-year-old boy who was a farmer's son. And he had the body mass of an 11-year-old. He wanted some body. To talk about informed consent was ridiculous. I could have asked him to do anything and he would say yes. What he volunteered for was to be fed with a tube through his nose for a month with a chronic cough. I mean, the tube went in and out a dozen times a day. Uh, halfway through the month, the nurses called me and said, uh, Stephen's just coughed up his tube again, and we've got lots of admissions. If you want your protocol followed, you better come put it in yourself. So I went in and put the tube in. That was a Sunday. I was wearing a suit. I was back at church by that stage. And he was a bright lad. He said, oh, you go to church? I said, yes, do you? It turned out he was Catholic, I was Protestant. I was so well-trained that it was an imposition to bring my faith into the area of practice. But I said nothing. He's amazing. He said something to his mother, obviously. She was an amazing woman, because she said to me, this is a woman going to lose three children to CF. Uh, she said, you ought to talk to Stephen and your other patients about faith. They need it, and you could do it. How she knew that, I had no idea. Didn't do it. Four years later, he came. Uh, I used to see him when he came in, if I knew he was there. And four years later, about this time of day, I was paged. I went to his room, and he was clearly dying. Uh, his mother was sitting by his bed, doing what you do in those circumstances. People dying with increasing CO2 levels. They're not in pain, but they don't want to be alone, usually. She'd been there, and he hadn't said anything for a couple of hours. But when I came in, he said, Good, I want to talk to you. Sit down. We were well past the normal doctor-patient relationship. So I sat down. He said, it says in the Bible, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. I'm 19 and I'm dying and I don't want to. What do you say? Now, I don't know about you, but I wanted to get out of there as fast as possible. But it wasn't an option. He was a friend. I tried the professorial escape route, but he was up to that. I said, Stephen, that's a difficult question. It will take a little while. Well, we both thought Monty Python was funny, so I got a Monty Python response, you know, just a wisp of a smile, and I have a little while. Both he and I knew that his life was measured in hours. So I started working my way through the Catholic Catechism. They believed it all. He believed in God, he believed Jesus was the Son of God, he believed he came to die for our sins, that if we confess our sins, we're forgiven, and when we die, we go to heaven. The problem was, of course, it wasn't helping. And I didn't know what to say, so under those circumstances, I pray too, Lord, what on earth do I say? And into my head popped Annie Dillard. Any of you Annie Dillard readers in Scotland? Uh, you should get her. Try Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek. She's lived a disordered life, so she knows what it's all about. And she is a Christian now. But the line that came into my head was this one. It's a footnote, actually. She said, oh, yes, God will provide for all your needs, but please do read the small print. He decides what your needs are. And I knew what to say. And I said to Stephen, I'd already pointed out that by this time there were children running on that ward who would not have been walking but for his courage. And I said, Stephen, I think you're misreading the text. You're reading it as we Westerners usually do. God's job to give, mine to ask. But the key phrase is in my name. God reserves the right to determine whether he will give you something or not. Whether it is good for you, as judged by him and not by you. 
Now, you can't bring your own protocol of what the world ought to be to that. If he created it, then he's going to know that better than you. And I said, given what you tell me you believe, I think God is saying something like this to you. Stephen, you have coughed as much as you should. You have done all that I want you to do. It is time to come home. Both you and I know that you're going to die in the next few hours unless there's a miracle. Can you also believe that that would be the best thing that could happen to you? And there was a very profound silence. And then he smiled and said, thank you. That helps. I think I can. And he did. He died very peacefully a few hours later. Now, it wouldn't have made any difference in my view, God's handling of Stephen, whether I'd been there or not. This was for me and for his mother. It was very important for his mother that he die well and peacefully. But she didn't let me off the hook. Three weeks later, I got a little note, which I still have somewhere, which said, it was ironic you were not allowed to give Stephen food for his body, but thank God you were there when he needed food for his soul. He'd been asking that question of his priest, of his family, of his doctor. They'd all pushed him away and said, Stephen, you're not dying. You don't need to talk about that. He knew he was, and he did. My problem, I hadn't had a conversation like that for 20 years. I had been practicing very bad medicine for a very long time because I had been guilty of not respecting other people's beliefs. Uh, I had been persuaded to suppress a really Christian understanding of death in favor of a tacitly atheistic one with absolutely no grounds for doing so because 70 or 80% of my patients, insofar as they had any means of handling death and suffering, was not a secular one, there isn't one, but there is a Judeo-Christian one that is a means, not an explanation, not an answer. Any other questions? Yes. Yeah, without moral integrity. I meant individual, because that's what matters to you. You're treated by an individual doctor. Not by, not by a society. Oh, that's okay. Uh, it, in order to be coherent, many of you need to. But given that you believe in tolerance, you ought to be tolerant of those who have another view. And in particular, if a woman has a right to an abortion, which I believe she does in a secular society, you can be a, a coherent ethical abortionist, but I think you have to believe that life is without any eternal meaning to be so. Uh, but on the other hand, all those people who believe the opposite... Surely they have as much right to know that the doctor delivering their baby is not going in the next 20 minutes to be killing babies. Well, you ask the mother who's just had a baby whether it's relevant. It doesn't need to be relevant. It's about her feelings in this case. But she does know. She asks. They always do. They care. You haven't had children yet. It changes you. At least I hope you haven't had children yet because you're not ready for them yet. But... Uh, no, it does change in big time. No, there's plenty of space in our society. We ought, I think, I think we need to divide the health system. We can have competition within a state-funded system, with the division being on the basis of what you believe, not on the basis of your training. Apart from, you see, you don't need to do abortions to learn the techniques. You can just do a DNC, uh, and you don't need the techniques. I mean, the, the 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 need for an abortion in our society, other than for social reasons, is negligible. Yeah, but, it, but, but, but you don't, 
But you don't want to live in a totalitarian state, do you, where people's really deep beliefs are not honored? You don't want that. But that's where it ends up. It has done every time. Why should it be different this time? And what harm is it to you if people with religious views are accommodated? What harm does that do to you? Well, that's all I want. But the other people are enforcing theirs. You have to go into the, into the office with a moral view of the world because it's a moral activity. You help patients to decide what they ought to do. It's not a technical activity. No, it's not. Gee, I would that it was. The, the amount of science that, that, that solves the problems for you in medicine is minimal. As I've told you, 90% of the patients coming into an office are suffering primarily from guilt these days. There's no scientific answer for that. Our biggest problems in our society is that we don't know what to do with people who think that life isn't worth living. That's not a scientific problem either. No, all the things that matter even to you have no material existence. You can't live without love. You wouldn't want to live without justice or honor or truth. None of those have any material existence. Therefore, science qua science has nothing to say about them. Science is a reduced understanding of the world. That's scientism. You need to talk to the people who are reading some Dostoevsky, and they might educate you a little bit. Ah, you, you can take it. I can see that. That's all right. Any other questions? Last question. I've got to catch a train to Aberdeen. I see. Yes. 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 Yeah, it's a huge question. Thank you. It's an, an extremely good one too. It doesn't. The question for those listening on tape later is the difference between internal and external controls, especially for Christians and Jews and other all the world's great religions. Actually, this has played a, a major role in my life because, of course, you all know that when somebody becomes Christian, they don't become good. And in fact, the Christians amongst you are often deeply embarrassed by people who claim to be Christian and live horrible lives. Especially doctors who aren't good doctors. And you know people who claim to have no beliefs who are wonderfully good people and you trust them with your life. So obviously goodness at that level is not related immediately to what you believe. But it is related to your social cultural story on a much bigger scale. Now I had to learn this in Africa. Um, I was as I said earlier, involved with the treatment of severely malnourished children, and was privileged to be part of the group that actually solved the problems in Jamaica in the 1970s. So it, took, it was a 20-year research program, and I happened to be fortunate to be there for the last five years that really mattered. And in those last five years, it all came together. Without modern intervention, the mortality rate for the kinds of children we were seeing was, was 50% when units started. Shortly before I left, we went through 110-pound two-year-olds, or worse, and saved every single one. So we'd got that problem solved. So I was scientistic at that time. I thought, good, malnutrition is going to diminish in the world. But I also have a respect for data. And every year, I would set my graduate students as one of their literature-searching exercises, find a nutrition education program in sub-Saharan Africa that had worked three years after all external inputs had been removed. There isn't one. There wasn't then. There will be soon, but there isn't one yet. It's proved impossible to enculturate fairly simple but sometimes counterintuitive principles. Now, we were bullied into going to Africa in the late 80s 
in order to help. We did a very foolish thing. We took some missionaries out to lunch. Never do that unless you wish your life to be disrupted. And they discovered that I knew as much about the treatment of malnourished children as anyone in the world at that point. And they said, well, we have a huge problem. You have to come and help us. And they asked. I asked how big it was, and they said, I said, nobody has a problem that big. You're doing something wrong with your assessment. What they were doing wrong when we got there was that they failed to adjust the fact that the tribe had intermarried with pygmies, which means you need to change the standards. They had the normal sort of 5% endemic malnutrition rate in the presence of food, which is a real problem. Malnutrition is not the absence of food. It's the presence of food where it isn't distributed. It's not even distribution on a worldwide basis. I can go to any village in sub-Saharan Africa at the beginning of the dry season, the best time of the year. There's plenty of food in the village, but 5% of the children need my help. I don't need to take anything with me. Uh, I set up a program for the hospital, and I trained my teenagers to do it. All my four kids have resuscitated malnourished children as teenagers. That was their summer work. My deal with with them was, if you come and work for me in the summer, I will pay for your first degree. Most of my kids have had children die in their arms as teenagers. That didn't do them any harm, because they saved many more. They had little patience with girls fussing with bad hair days at high school. Uh, but apart from that, there were no really serious problems. Two of them did their last year at high school by correspondence. That's okay. But as long as I was there and as long as my kids were there, the program worked. But I could go away for nine months or eight months and come back. And being the cynic that I was, the skeptic, I would measure the data and show that the program was already running downhill. Uh, and then the worst thing happened. One of the nurses that I trained had his own child die of malnutrition. And I said... What happened? Well, he gave me the immediate clue. He wouldn't look me in the face. He looked at the ground, and he gave me the answer he knew I wanted, that he hadn't fed him properly. But I knew he didn't believe it. I didn't know what he did believe. So I sent my supervisor. I said, I want to know what he really believes. He came back. He said, well, he believes an evil spirit took the child's appetite away. So I went back to the nurse and said, but if I had fed your baby, it would have got better. You know that. He said, yes, but you have a stronger spirit. There's no way of penetrating the animist explanation of suffering and disease. And it's a better explanation than the Christian one. If you live in Central Africa and a good proportion of your kids don't make it to maturity, you have some of the worst diseases in the world circulating and the worst governments in the world, the evidence for a God of love is not immediately apparent. But amazingly, most of them have become Christian. Now, then I wasn't satisfying my wife, who is always an activist. Uh, I, I wouldn't be here today if she hadn't arranged it. You know, She doesn't like me sitting around. And she said, you're not doing enough work. And I said, well, I'm thinking. And she said, that looks like not doing nothing to me. And anyway, classic stand- family row. But then she said, at least you can do a Bible study for the African graduates are unemployed. Now that hit me like a blow on the head. Because if I've had a student in my class, even in biochemistry, they might be unpaid in the future, but they ought to go away with a desire to read that will never be satisfied in a normal lifetime. They're going to be employed forever. So I said, all right, I'll do that. And she said, you should do Deuteronomy. And I started teaching Deuteronomy, which is the heart of Jewish survival. And at the heart of it is childcare. And the form of the childcare is the responsibility of the father to teach the children the stories of Judaism. When you do that, you get Jewish ethics, Jewish goodness. The Jews never have malnourished children, except in war. We all get in war and famine. But malnutrition is used by the World Bank as an index of development. Jews never get it. Enculturated Protestant societies never get it. Catholic societies only get it where 
too syncretic with animism, as in South America. Muslims get quite a lot. Buddhists and Hindus get more. Animists get the most. It's a linear regression. And it's to do with fatalism. The story you inhabit, I know you don't like that idea, but it does make a difference. So if you grow up with the Old Testament as your key book in your life, you will have Jewish ethics. If it's the Bible, Christian ethics. If it's television, British ethics. Because that's where the repeated story comes from in most of the young people growing up today. They, they are much more informed about the ads that have run on television during their first seven years of life where they could score nearly 100% than they could tell you what is the real meaning of the sentence you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. And if you can't tell me the real meaning, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and we have to stop there.